Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me um, Brian Lee Durfee, who is the author of the Five Warrior Angels Trilogy. He is a wildlife and fantasy artist, and he is a YouTuber who does book reviews and other stuff. Uh, Brian, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, about your book series. Okay, yeah, like, uh, like I was introduced, my name is Brian Lee Durfee. I'm the author of The Forgetting Moon, which I'm holding up here and The Blackest Heart, both books published by Simon & Schuster's Saga Press. Um, book three, The Lonesome Crown, is coming out November 29th of 2022, so in about a month and a half. And uh, so that's my big claim to fame. I also um, used to be a wildlife artist, and I used to uh, do illustrations for Magic the Gathering, and Dungeons and Dragons uh, game, um, among a lot of other clients. And then um, I also do a YouTube channel where I review books and give writing advice. Um, and that's pretty much it. My day job, all of those that I things that I mentioned are my hobbies that I make some money off of. My day job is I am a sergeant at the Utah State Prison. Um, and I uh, currently, I've, I've worked in the mental health unit, the gang unit, intake unit. I've ran the prison libraries for about five years and now I currently teach life skills to the inmates in the maximum security unit. That's fantastic. Um, I was a corrections officer once upon a time and I know how valuable that stuff is. Um, one of the things that the inmates looked forward to the most was our day was uh, for the library was Friday and we had the public library come down and it's something that, you know, their faces lit up. They were able to get um, some respite from the humdrum of, of prison life. And so for you to, to do all that stuff and to teach life skills, I think is amazing. Um, what, let's, let's talk about your book series right now. Uh, what is, what was the, the genesis for the story? Oh man, that started when I was just a kid. Um, I was about 12 or 13 years old and, uh, I was in a bookstore. I, I grew up in Sevier County, Utah. For those people that don't know where Sevier County, Utah is, it's it's about as remote as uh, where you're from. Uh, <laughs> it's a small desert community. Uh, I, nothing much goes on. We didn't have any real bookstores. We had sort of a school library, a bookmobile, things like that. But I was never really interested in books. I just grew up on a farm, working on the farm, and I remember one day I was in Salt Lake City in a bookstore and I ran across a copy of The Sword of Shannara by Terry Brooks and something about it, just the cover image just leapt off the uh, bookshelf at me and it spoke to me in some way and I was just mesmerized by the cover and so uh, I bought it. That was the first ever spur of the moment purchase I'd ever made that was of a book um with my own money and uh i think my parents were a little bit like well what is this thing you've you know bought yourself <laughs> and i just started reading it and about 80 or to 90 pages into the book i was so captivated by what i was reading that i just knew immediately that i wanted to do something similar with my life write books and if not write books, then illustrate books, because that cover illustration was done by the uh, classic fantasy artists, the brothers Hildebrandt. And um, so I was like, well, I'm either going to be a fantasy artist or a fantasy writer. And I ended up becoming both. Um, so that was the genesis of the story. It kind of, I started taking notes immediately when I was a kid of different things I wanted to have happen in the books uh, that I wanted to write. And I just always kept those notes um, throughout my life, just with a dream to write. Um, I got into my late teens and never really wrote anything. I got into my early 20s and never wrote anything. My late 20s, I was still procrastinating the dream. It wasn't until I hit about 30 years old that I was like, I should really gather up all those years worth of notes that I've been taking and make something out of it. And uh, 
I still kept procrastinating it. You know, it's a couple of years went by. I was cleaning carpets uh, part time. I was doing my artwork part time, um, struggling to get by as a starving artist. And one day I was cleaning carpets with um, one of our clients was John Stockton, who used to be the point guard for the Utah Jazz. And this would have been right towards the tail end of his career, might have been the last season that he played in Utah, but I was cleaning his carpets and, and we, he was a regular client of ours. And I was in his den and he was sitting at the desk in his den and I noticed he had a, well, I'd noticed his book collection several times prior when I'd been in the house. And uh, he had a lot of books like Tom Clancy and like Lonesome Dove and um, a lot of thriller novels and um, like the Da Vinci Code and things like that. And I just started a conversation up with him about those books and we had a pretty good conversation about the different books we loved. And then I just made the offhand comment, well, I always dreamed of writing books someday. And he, uh, he said, well, why, why haven't you? And I just, I couldn't stop thinking about that. The whole rest of the day, I was just thinking about why haven't I, why haven't I? That night, I actually got out my uh, typewriter at the time. I mean, I didn't have a, <laughs> I didn't have a really a laptop. I mean, laptops existed. I just didn't have one. Um, and I just started typing away on my first novel and I've been writing every day since. So that's kind of the genesis. And I did the whole John Stockton story. I did include that story in the uh, acknowledgement pages of this book here but in a much briefer form. I was hoping you would mention that story because that, um, that one question that John Stockton, um, you know, asked you, why haven't you, that, that can cut deep to somebody who has procrastinated. Like, like me, I've, I wanted to write a book. I started writing my first book in 2002, but I still haven't published one. And, you know, that, when I read that in Black It's Heart the first time, um, it was like, you know what, maybe I should like, do something and i wanted to do a podcast like this or, or you know some sort of interview format whether that's written word or podcast or whatever for a long long time and that story right there after i read it i was like you know what? i'm just going to reach out to people and see if i can get interviews so like not only has that story with john stockton helped you but it has helped other people as well so i'm glad that you included that in, in the in, in in this interview so thank you Oh yeah, no problem. Like I said, sometimes, sometimes inspiration comes from the strangest places. Like I think anybody else on this planet could have said those very same words to me. And I just would have been like, yeah, whatever. But since it was John Stockton, you know, I was like, here's a guy that made it to the top of his profession, you know, against all odds. And in his mind, he's probably thinking, well, if I was a writer, I'd be, if I wanted to be a writer, I'd be a writer, you know, right. like, who is this stupid carpet cleaner that just is, <laughs> has all these dreams and is still cleaning my carpets, you know? Yeah. No. And you said you took, um, you know, you've been writing every day since then. Um, how long did it take you before um, your novel came out? And then how many rounds of edits did you have to do? Okay. Uh, that's a good question. And this is going to shock. Well, I've told the story before, but a lot of up and coming writers are a little bit shocked and intimidated by what I'm about to say. So I, I, I would say that that conversation I had with John Stockton happened about 2002, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe 2003, I can't remember when his last season was with the Utah Jazz, but it, that's when it happened. And, uh, and uh, I mean, I started writing that day and I started writing two separate books. Um, I started writing uh, The Forgetting Moon and, I, and, an, and an epic horror novel that I uh, wanted to write. I, I was trying to be like Stephen King. So I was kind of working on both of them back and forth for a couple of years. Um, I finished the horror novel first um, and then I started editing and re-editing the horror novel because I'm like, okay, this one's done. I'm gonna see if I can get it published. Um, so I finished the first draft of that around 2004 or 2005. I tried, I edited it, not enough. It, it just, I, I wasn't a very skilled writer or a very skilled editor. 
So I edited it like maybe three or four times and then I started querying it, sending it out to different agents and editors in New York. And I think I sent like a hundred queries out. I got a hundred rejection letters on that book. Uh, there was a handful of the rejection letters though that came back with some pretty positive notes. Like, hey, this is pretty decent. Um, you're on the right path. You just need to polish up your writing a little bit. Um, so that gave me encouragement to know that, hey, I wasn't wasting my time. And so I thought, well, now I'm going to go ahead and finish the fantasy novel because I'd gotten pretty good way into The Forgetting Moon and I just needed to finish it up. So I finished it up probably around 2008, the first draft. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I was, I was cleaning carpets at the time. I was working at the prison at the time. I, I mean, this is something that I was just doing I wasn't in a hurry. I was doing it when I had free moments. Um, you know, I would try to write every day, but if there was two or three days that go by that I didn't write, I wasn't stressed about it. But, you know, I was writing every week a considerable amount. Um, and so I finished Forgetting Moon in 2008. And I was hesitant to query and send it out. Um, because this was going to be my second huge novel that I'd written and I didn't want the rejection. So I actually edited this. I went over it. I would say I did um, probably 30 to 35, maybe even close to 40 rereads of the entire book from start to finish, just tinkering with it and fixing things and making things as best as I could. So Literally, I would say somewhere between 30 and 40 different edits. And it, that was about another five years worth of time I spent on it from 2008 to about 2013 or 14. And then once I thought it was as polished as it could be, um, that's when I queried agents again. But this time, instead of sending it to 100 different agents i just targeted the six most um well i just figured out which agents in new york city represented big epic fantasy novels like robert jordan's agent uh brandon sanderson's agent um tad williams agent george rr R. martin's agent um steven erickson's agent everybody that had written a massive uh, pat rothfuss's agent Anybody that had written a massive, big, huge, thousand-page fantasy, those were the six guys that I sent my queries to. And I got an, a query letter for those people that don't know is just an introduction letter introducing yourself to an agent, a literary agent, and then you send them, and the letter should only be about a page long, just briefly describing yourself in the book, and then you send the first three chapters of the book. And if they're interested in those first three chapters, they will request a full manuscript. So I sent six query letters with my sample chapters out to those six agents, and every single one of them asked for the manuscript. That's amazing. So I was like, wow, that was like, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and then uh, a few months went by, and I never did hear from a few of those agents again. Several of them called me back and offered me representation. And then I got to pick kind of which one I felt I vibed with the best. And so I signed with the agent that I signed with. And with just within months, he got me a book deal with a major publisher. So that's a fantastic story. And you're, you're, you're right. It is intimidating, you know, to write a book and then think, oh, man, I got 30 to 40 edits to do. And Side note, like you, you really don't, um, this was, this is Brian's journey. Your journey might be a little different, but yeah. Brian, how, how did you stay motivated after getting a hundred rejection letters from your horror novel? I stayed motivated because I'd already been somewhat of a success with my artwork. And I knew that that was not overnight. That also, I mean, just getting my artwork to the point where it was professional enough that people would hire me like big companies would hire me like uh 
you know, tops trading cards and Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering, I'm trying to think of some of the other people I did work for. But, and then not only that, but my wildlife art was selling at the time in some of the most prestigious Western art galleries in the world, you know, in Jackson, Wyoming and Park City, Utah and Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so I knew just from my experience with my paintings that you might fail a lot and you might do 200 really, really bad paintings before you do one that's kind of good. And then you might do 200 more that are kind of good before you get sort of good. And then you do 200 more before you're sort of good. And then you do 200 more and then you're actually kind of, you're better. And then, you know, by your thousands painting, you're selling professionally, right? right? So I knew it was possible. So I knew that it's just a matter of time as long as I dedicate myself to the craft. And not only that, but I read, ever since I was 12 years old, I had read four to five books a week since I was just a kid. And I think that that was the biggest training that I ever had, because I've never taken a creative writing class or an English class or, well, I've taken English classes, but I mean, in college, we had English 101. But that was as much as I ever got. I never did take anything about creative writing. I just, I, my school in creative writing was just reading thousands and thousands of novels. Mm-hmm. And just, if I, if I gleaned anything out of that, you know, that's what I used for my schooling, my uh, education was just other people's writing and figuring out, you know, I mean, if you, if you were a, a voracious reader, you can, you can be a good writer. You really can. If you don't read, you'll never be a good writer. And so I knew I had that going for me is that I was, I read a lot. So, and then I just knew that if I just kept doing it and kept doing it, like I said, I, everybody's journey is different. Some people, I tell some people that I did 40 ed- edits on my book and they're like, whoa, dude, you, that's way overkill, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, you have to understand, I was starting at a point where I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And my first draft was real garbage. I mean, like serious garbage. And I had to do 40 drafts just to fix all of that garbage. And uh, other people that are more talented than me, they might only need two or three or four drafts. I know like Robert B. Parker, towards the end of his career, he wrote like some 150 some odd novels and he he was getting so good that he was just turning in his first draft to the publisher. So like you said, everybody's journey is going to be different. Right. No, and that's amazing. And I've learned so much from you already um some tips or tricks for people who are, are listening um things that you can take away from brian so far is you know don't get discouraged give it time have dedication you know you said you were writing but not not necessarily every day but every week like stick have consistency and um you know if you have to have to do 30 to 40 edits that's okay it's easier to steer a park uh, a moving car than a parked car get those words down on page and, and you able to um to fix them later this is this is fantastic yeah. yeah another bit of writing advice i give is just exactly what you said i didn't care how outlandish or outrageous my idea was in that first draft i stuck that in the book um because it's not going to harm anything in the first draft if but, i'm rereading it you know maybe the second draft I will be like wow that was a stupid idea and so you'll just delete it or maybe it's not till the sixth or seventh time you read through your manuscript and you're like well that's idea just ain't working you just delete it it's not like you have to be married to it and a lot of them I didn't delete a lot of them I just I would write a scene or several pages or even whole chapters that just didn't work Rather than deleting them forever, I just I have a file saved on my zip drives and computers of just things that I've written that didn't work and pieces of those because I already wrote it. It's already my own writing. I just once in a while, if I'm stuck for a a little bit of something, a little bit of a description of a castle or a cave, I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember I wrote a pretty good description of that cave. But then I but then I uh, got rid of it, but I still have it, so I just copy paste and put it in another part of the story. 
So it's not like even if you're deleting stuff, save what you deleted and uh, you, you might find you can use it elsewhere. Well, I know that people have, um, well, Brandon Sanderson, um, he has taken old um, subject material, characters and stuff, and has reused them and created new stories from them. So what you said there is, a, is, is great advice as well. Like, don't throw away anything. Like, keep it. You might be able to use it later on. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, Stephen King is a big influence, and anybody that follows you on social media knows that you, you love him. Um, besides him, I have a question about him, but besides him, who are some of your other influences? Okay, when I was writing, uh, there's several authors I like to emulate. Um, Stephen King, of course. Um, Robert McCammon, who's also a horror writer. Robert McCammon wrote Boy's Life, Swan Song, and a dozen more really good horror novels. I like his style. Um, my favorite writer that I try to copy most is Larry McMurtry and his Lonesome Dove series. I know it's Western, but you could just switch the characters out. You could switch all of his cowboys out and make them knights in shining armor, and you'd have just an absolutely great action-adventure novel. And um, I just love the way he writes, his cadence, his sense of humor, his, the way the characters talk to each other. I really tried to mimic that in my own novels um, as much as I can. Uh, Another influence is Tad Williams. Um, you know, I read a lot of fantasy novels when I was a kid, and it wasn't until I got into my late teen years that Tad Williams, uh, I started getting into Tad Williams, and um, that was the first writer that really made me appreciate um, uh, what really good prose can add to a book like lyrical sentences, how words fit together, how they sound when they roll off the tongue. Um, I just thought his writing was so gorgeous. And I'm just like, man, this guy's writing at a level above everybody else I've ever read before. And that was the main influence for me because I would just study everything he was doing. And uh, so Tad Williams, who have I mentioned? Tad Williams, Larry McMurtry, um, I think George R.R. R. Martin also writes really well. Uh, I mean, it's almost flawless, right? his writing um, itself. Uh, there are some scenes in some of his books that maybe um, the pace is lagging a little bit, but I still just love the flow of the writing. Right, um, all of those authors are, are fantastic. I've read most of them and you're right, like, you know, Tad Williams, um, Larry McMurdy, um, you know, uh, uh, George R. R. Martin. Anyway, all those guys are have, uh, are, are really great. Um, some of the best in the business. In fact, like Tad Williams, I think it's kind of underrated in the fantasy um, readership. Um, you know, there, he's influenced so many people and there's still a lot of people that I talk to that hasn't ever heard of like um, the Dragon Bone Chair or, or any you know, yeah. other, other land series or, or whatever. Probably more exciting. I mean, it was exciting to get my book deal, but I think the most exciting thing that ever happened to me was when I met Tad Williams and got to hang out with him for three days and become friends with him. And then if anybody that has my second novel, um, The Blackest Heart, you can see that he gave me a, uh, I don't know if that's even gonna show up on your screen, but he gave a blurb for me, the, you know, a recommendation on the cover, on the front cover for my book. So to have like one of my literary heroes actually, you know, say that I'm a good writer and it's right there on the front of my own novel that he said that is pretty cool. I was, th I think I was more excited about that than I actually getting <laughs> an <actual> deal. <laughs> no, that's so, exciting when one of your heroes, you know, a dream come true, right? Yeah. So um, I, I know that you love Stephen King. Um, and here's, here's my question about him. If you could emulate one quality of Stephen King's writing, what would it be? Oh, I try to do that. And it's this, I think every Stephen King novel, well, most of them, because he has written short stories that don't do this and he's written shorter novels that don't do this, but most of his novels, he, um, and, 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 and he gets criticism for this by a lot of people that don't appreciate him. 
but he will just take a character and um, just write about that character and some of the most mundane things that are going on in that character's life. And some of the most, what you would think are so insignificant things, but that's where the magic of his characterizations are, is that's why pe the people that love him, love him for that, where he can take a character and flesh them out to the point where you know their whole backstory, their childhood, what their childhood was like, things that happened to them in their childhood, anecdotes of their marriage or their children or how their parents raised them, um, funny little things that happened to them as they were growing up. All of this stuff piles up in a book and that's why things like It and The Stand and uh, Under the Dome and 112263, some of these bigger books that he writes like needful things. A lot of these books seem awfully bloated to people and he gets a lot of criticism, like he's vomiting words out all over the page for no reason. But the people that love his writing love him because of that. And if there's one thing that I would, I've tried to do is, especially when I was writing my horror novel, um, was I tried to add that kind of element to the story is just, I met, if there's a character in the story, I want, I want him, I want him or her to, like, have a, a big storyline, like a backstory to them. And it definitely fleshes out the character more, even the little mundane things, um, you know, brushing your teeth or starting a fire or or whatever you're doing. Like, it, it does flesh him out to to make him um, a more realistic character. Part of you. Yeah, and sometimes Stephen King will just, it's, and it's simple things, you know, he'll, you'll have a character who's a teenager sitting in his bedroom in a trailer park, and Stephen King will just describe the things on the kid's shelf, you know, a Superman thing, a P-51 Mustang model that he built when he was nine, or a, a jar of marbles, or a gumball machine, or all of the cassette tapes that have the heavy metal music that he listens to. And he'll list off all of that stuff. And a lot of people are like, why am I reading a list of things in this boy's room, <laughs> you know? Right. But you, you come to appreciate that character even more because you know, hey, this is a character that's not just a character. This is a character that actually lives in this universe and has interests and goals and dreams and things that he collects. It just makes it seem more real. Right. No, that's a fantastic quality to try to emulate. I, and, and you do that very well in, um, you know, in your first two books, The Getting Moon and The Black Heart. Um, so you said your third book's coming out. What, um, what are some of your writing habits now? Um, that, and how has that changed throughout your, your journey? Um, so The Forgetting Moon, the first book, like I said, I, I was in no rush to do it. Um, I was under no deadlines. I could work on it when I felt like it. Uh, so it took me quite a while, you know? And, uh, you know, it took me 10 years or some odd to, to, from start to finish. Not only, I guess even more than that, because I started taking notes for the book when I was 12 years old, you know? Right. Once I got the book contract for three books, there were deadlines that I had to meet. <laughs> and now I had to write books that were even bigger than Forgetting Moon. And um, I had to do them fast. So then I was writing every day. Every day after work, all, every weekend, it just seemed like this thing that was hanging over my head all the time where if I did something enjoyable that wasn't writing related, I felt guilty. Um, uh, so it was a lot of pressure to, in, and, and in a way though, that helped, I think it helped me write better. Um, uh, it certainly helped me write faster because these books, each one of these books is a thousand pages or more and uh, took me two and a half years for each one. Um, I was under a two year deadline for each one. I missed each deadline by six months, but my publisher didn't seem to care. Um, so, you know, so you're writing every day. Did you, 
did you have like a word goal you wanted to do or just like okay i have the scene i have to write how how is your writing process um there was no goals per every day i i wanted to get a chapter done at least one chapter done every week if possible if it was a longer chapter maybe two weeks now my chapters run from everywhere between seven pages to 30 pages so you know if i finished one of the shorter chapters in a week i was like yay um well some of the longer ones you know were taking two or three weeks um so there was no i I, you know it was just if i was if i'd get to work on a saturday and the words were flowing with ease i would just keep going until they weren't so there were some days where i knocked out a lot of stuff and then other days where i struggled and didn't accomplish much Mm -hmm. um but that's gonna be typical for everybody um but i was kind of i kind of knew that would happen because it's the same way that it was with my paintings you know painting was a lot like it's a physical activity it's an eye hand coordination thing and getting ready to do a painting was almost like prepping yourself to play a basketball game or a football game you you just kind of had to psych yourself out because you knew you were going to be involved in a physical activity for the rest of the day and sometimes you know like basketball players sometimes they go into a game and every three-point shot they throw up there it goes right in the net right it's unexplainable right they just and then the next game they can't hit anything it's just a brick after brick after brick it's the same thing with painting like you sit down and do a painting and sometimes every brush stroke that you do is just magical and then other days you just like you feel like you're point you're painting with the the wrong end of the brush you know what i mean (laughs) it just doesn't work you know same thing with writing it can be the same thing sometimes you just every word seems to come to you automatically the scenes just seem to flow out of your the tips of your fingers into the computer and then other days you're just like you can't think of a word you know that is right for the scene and you'll just you can't think of a way to carry the scene forward or you don't know what the characters are supposed to say in this part and so you just you just sit there frustrated but those days come and go you never know which day you're going to get you just keep going you don't just say ah the hell with it i'm never writing again if you have a bad day you just well that was a bad day maybe tomorrow i'll i'll make all my shots right and and i love that analogy too because if people are on their journey becoming an artist or an author or whatever, um, most of us have day jobs too. And this is a side job that we're trying to do. And just like your real job, there are days where everything goes right and there are days where everything goes wrong. So you kind of have to expect that in your writing journey, your artist journey, or whatever journey you want to do, whether that's blacksmithing or being a mechanic or or whatever like you just have to realize that there are going to be good days and bad days so yeah that's a that's a great analogy um you know you have thick novels a thousand uh, pages each um how much do you outline or do you outline or do you you know it's a, it'd be amazing if you were able to, to not outline and, and do that i'd be super impressed um it's a little bit of both um i did a video on my youtube channel if you had just Go to my YouTube. Well, you just go, just type in my last name, Durfee, writing advice, and maybe the word outlines. And the video should come up just with those prompts. Uh, and it is about a 20 minute video of me explaining exactly how I keep uh, my outlines going. And so, in a nutshell, it's this um, I, um, before I set out to write a book, I will open up a Word document and at the top of each page, so I'll, I'll open up and at the top of each page, I'll put chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. So I'll have like a hundred chapters, all right, in the document. So now I've got a hundred pages opened up in the document. Um, just and at the top of the page, that's all that's listed is chapter one, two, three, four, five. And what I will do is my outline sort of grows on its own. If I think of something that will be good in the book, I'm like, okay, that scene might happen somewhere around chapter 34. So I will go ahead and type that into the page that says chapter 34. And I do this every day. I I walk around 
with a notepad. Well, it's not a notepad. I walk around with a piece of paper. So anytime I have an idea, this is another thing that I tell people is if you've got an idea, I don't care how wild and crazy and stupid you think it might be, write it down on that piece of paper. And then every night I would get home and, uh, or every time I would open up my laptop to work on something, the first thing I would do is I'd take that piece of paper of all these notes I compiled during that day. And the notes could be an idea for a scene, a little snippet of dialogue between characters. Maybe I thought of a cool way to describe a misty forest. And so I wrote that down. I write all that stuff down on the paper during the day. And then when I open my document that I'm writing on, I just go to whatever chapter I think that those things will fit in and I just put them there. And so I'm writing and creating the outline at the same time. So I will start in chapter one writing and but I've got all these other chapters filled with notes coming up. So then when I'm done with chapter one, I open, I go to chapter two and I've already got like several pages worth of notes that I've written for chapter two. And then I do chapter two. And by the, by the time I get to the final chapters, I've got so many notes in those chapters. It's almost like the chapter's written already because I've kept adding to it. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. Do you, because, you know, stories have structure and different things. Do you, um, you know, you have different sort of plot um, devices that you can use. Like, I know there's um, oh, Dan Harmon's story circle or, you know, just a perfect, like just a traditional uh, three-act structure. Um, do you kind of have that in mind as you're writing or do you just kind of go and, the story concludes itself usually. Yeah, the story, I just kind of do it the way I described it. There's no, um, I don't have any structure to anything. In fact, every single one, I consider my trilogy one entire long novel. And it just kind of each book sort of just abruptly ends. I tried to abruptly end each book with a bit of a cliffhanger or, or something like that. So there was kind of something there at the end, but it's not like, um, yeah, because I, I mean, it's probably because I didn't plan it very well. I just, I had the, I had the whole story sort of planned and I'm just like, well, I've, it's gonna, I can't have a 5,000 page novel. So I'm gonna have to uh, chop it somewhere to make it into smaller novels. <laughs> um, no, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> And that's uh, quite an effort to 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 do as well as a, as an outline. I'm really impressed, um, and I think that anybody can can learn from that to be able to be like you know it doesn't have to be 100 chapters. It can be 25 or 30, whatever your the story yeah. demands. But you know that I think that's a great way. I think for myself when I'm brainstorming and writing, um, some of my notes not necessarily get lost. But I think I can take your process and be like, oh, this, this might fit better here instead of, you know, I have an idea, like, instead of putting in the first chapter, like, how can I build to that? And how can I move on from that, you know? Yeah. I, th I think that's great mm -hmm. advice. Um, I'm, so, you know, you were a fantasy and wildlife artist. Um, I, I've looked at some of your, your fantasy art. And for those who go on uh, your website, they can look at both of them and they'll find one painting in particular that looks very, very similar. You have uh, a painting of a river with a, a ram and a painting with a river with a, an elf lady on there. Um, so you, yeah. you're able to use one and, and cover the other, or I don't, I don't know which one you did first. Okay, so the, ori the original painting was a fantasy painting I did for Dungeons and Dragons. And it was a picture of a elf standing on a cliff with a waterfall. And uh, so that painting was just sort of lounging around in my house. And I, and I was like desperate for a wild, I had a show like a wildlife art show coming up and I needed to do a painting real fast for it. And I'm like, I just don't have time. Oh, how about I paint this elf out of the scene and put a mountain goat up on that cliff with the waterfall, which is what I did. So, so it actually was, it was a painting that had to, to serve, serve two purposes. 
Um, and it ended up selling, the gallery sold it. And I think even on the back of the painting, I, I put the uh, photo of the original fantasy elf, you know, so the person that bought it could see what I'd done. Um, or maybe I didn't, I can't remember. I can't remember if I did that or not. I would just like, if some art restorer ever gets to that, <laughs> painting and tries to restore it and they're they're like wait a minute there's an elf under this goat <laughs> no I, I think that's a, amazing fantastic but i was looking at your fantasy art and you have a very traditional like i don't, don't want to say 80s style but like larry elmore you know you mentioned the hildebrand yeah. um style um to him in fact i was looking at one that i thought was a larry elmore you you know it's like so good um yeah who, I don't, I don't know if they're your influences, but who are some of your influences uh, towards your fantasy art? I think Elmore might've been the biggest one. Probably the Brothers Hildebrandt who did the Sword of Shannara book cover. The Brothers Hildebrandt also back in the late 1970s, they did all of the J.R.R. Tolkien artwork for all the calendars, any, any Lord of the Rings products back then it was the brothers hildebrandt that did those illustrations so I, I liked them a lot larry elmore and keith parkinson were probably two of my favorites um and but my all-time favorite fantasy artist was michael whalen uh and so i tried to sort of as a fantasy artist i i tried to have a style that was sort of i guess all of those combined <laughs> um and another cool thing that happened was uh, me and Larry Elmore were artist guests of honor at a convention in Utah back in 1999. And, uh, and so um, I actually took Larry Elmore on a tour because he was in Utah and he had uh, a few days to spare after the, and I was like, hey man, I can take you a tour. And, and we drove down through um, Moab and um, Capitol Reef and uh, Bryce Canyon and Zion Canyon and the Grand Canyon. And uh, so that was another cool thing because Larry Elmore, when I was a kid, was another one of my heroes. And to be able to take him on a tour of Utah when I was an adult, straight out of college. I mean, that was right when I was out of college. Um, that was pretty cool. So I've remained friends with him too. That's awesome. You've, you've met all your heroes, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, just, you know, just happens, you know, when you, uh, you know, when you uh, end up at these comic cons or these conventions or when you do an art shows or, you know you kind of make contacts here and there right which is important um as an author too and as an artist if you're if you're going that road too is um you know we this you haven't outright said this but like networking is is really important and knowing um knowing how to put yourself out there to be in these situations like like you have been to where you can meet you know your heroes or or even if it's not your heroes but somebody who can help you along your journey yeah i think i think that's great um so you are obviously a talented um artist most people won't have this ability but you you probably could have chosen to do your own own covers um what were some of the decisions of, of not doing that i mean your covers are fantastic um you know I, I i love them but you know you i don't know if you're out of practice or or whatnot but like you you could have had this choice to do that yeah so um years and years ago um and i made a, several videos about this subject on my youtube channel um but i suffered uh some strokes in my left eye which um left me blind in my left eye and i didn't know what was going on I just noticed that I was having a hard time seeing and uh, my paintings were taking longer and longer. You know, a painting I could normally do in a week was now taking me like a month and a half and I was really struggling and I just couldn't see very well. And well, long story short, it took me, cause I'm stubborn. I'm like, oh, I probably just need a new 
prescription for my glasses or or maybe you know whatever is wrong with me it'll just correct itself and go away and so I, I really did the stupid thing and didn't go get my eyes checked out for years but what it did was it I just stopped painting because I it was the strain on my eyes was bad it was painful um, I couldn't see what the hell I was doing um, the paintings weren't as good they were taking longer and finally when I went and got my eyes checked they said yeah you've had strokes in your left eye and that's why you've got these vision problems and by by that time I was already kind of writing a lot um, and I just I just lost every single ounce of passion that I ever had for painting okay um I just just it almost like a light switch turned off like I had such a love for it and such a passion for it and then it was just like gone and uh but luckily my passion for writing actually accelerated at the same time and so I actually don't think of it as a negative I think of it as a positive so when it came time for the book covers um, my publisher was aware of my artwork and we did talk and I just said you know I think they're I think that if I were to do it, um, it would not be very good. I would struggle with it. I'm out of practice. Um, and even the stuff that I was doing towards the end of my art journey was sort of starting to look not that great. And there's so many magnificent illustrators out there now that I would be proud to have those guys on my cover. And then they said, well, who, who do you like? Which illustrators are your favorites? So I gave them three names. And they chose one of the names was Richard Anderson. He's a he was a new up and coming illustrator. I liked his style. It was unique. It was different different than anything I'd seen. But I thought it was cool. And he was one of the people's names I gave him, and that's who they got. That's amazing. You know, it's having these trials. Uh, you literally live the expression when you know when one door closes, another one opens. With yeah. your you know that that passion dropped and left you completely about painting about art and it literally just rose with with writing um you know and some people could have gone down a deep dark oh you know i love love painting i you know i can't do it anymore so what am i going to do but you you rose above that and you know i know you've had some health issues lately and again you could have had that same reaction of i'm going to go down this deep dark hole but yeah. it, it seems like you you rose above it yeah well the health issues continued and it's mostly with my eyes because you know what the, the issue i had with my left eye was a, a disease called retinal vein occlusion which is basically strokes in your eye and um they say that only about 15 percent of the people that have stroke in one eye will ever have one in the other eye and so I just kind of was like, oh, yeah, well, that'll never happen to me. Those odds are pretty good. And then about six months ago, I had started to have strokes in my right eye too, because my vision was starting to go. And, and uh, so that's where I am now. Uh, no, the doctors give me no guarantees that, um, that the strokes I've had in my right eye will probably likely make me go blind in that eye too down the road um there's no cure for it the only thing they can do is inject medicine into your eye and i'm telling you that's that ain't no joke i mean it's like an actual needle in your eye and right. now they're doing it into both eyes to keep the because the strokes what they do is those strokes will uh, warp your retina and once the retina is warped, you just can't see. And the stroke, the, the medicine is supposed to um, limit the amount of damage the stroke does. It, it won't heal it, but it will stop the damage from spreading, ideally, in most people, but there's no guarantees. So yeah, the, to this day, I can still just wake up one morning and not be able to see. It's just one of those things that I've gotten, but it's... It's, you know, so if you, another lesson for people, um, which I ignored my whole life is your eating habits and your exercise. Um, they 
you can uh, if you don't eat right because i'd never i exercise i actually was pretty good about lifting weights and exercising but i ate nothing but garbage my whole life and those things cause high blood pressure and it's high blood pressure that causes strokes and as a young person they people can tell you over and over and over you know watch what you eat don't eat all that sugar stop drinking all that soda pop you know stop eating cheeseburgers and hot dogs and dorito chips and and fritos for every meal you know and uh because it'll catch up to you and nobody told me that you might lose your vision at a young age because of your eating habits but you can right so nobody thinks of that yeah that's just a warning to people that you know it can happen yeah no that's that's great advice and a great um you know public service announcement to for for anybody um so you know you worked for wizard of the coast doing dungeons dragons and magic the gathering and um how often do people come up with uh, magic cards to have you sign at conventions oh all the time actually it's i am you know some of those illustrations i did for magic the gathering i did them when i was so young and so not very good at artwork that I they make I look at them and they and they make my eyes bleed as if my eyes don't have enough problems. You know, looking at looking at some of my old artwork actually makes blood come out of my tear ducts. Um because it's so painful to look at them. And I did a, a lot of those Magic the Gathering cards and a lot of the J.R.R. Tolkien cards and I did Dune cards. I did some Wheel of Time cards. Just in my opinion, horrible illustrations. I got so much better the older I got, but I'm still most famous for those Magic the Gathering cards. Every week I get fan mail from around the world with Magic cards in the mail to sign, you know, like That's actual amazing. mail through the mail, actual through the mail, no, no emails, no, not, I mean, like actual people actually mail them to my address. Wow. And I'm signing them all the time. Every week I've got a handful of magic cards to sign and mail back to people. So a lot. It's staggering. I had no idea. If I would have known how popular those illustrations would have been, I even as kind of ugly as I thought a lot of them were, I was just giving them away to friends, the actual original artwork back in the late 90s when when i was doing it and uh i was just given the original artwork to people people i didn't even know oh, really? and now now those original pieces of art those people that i gave them to are selling them on ebay for tens of thousands of dollars oh wow it's crazy That's i wish i had kept all of it i wish i had oh, kept yeah. all of it i had no idea <laughs> You, you, well, you know, as a as a young kid, and granted, Magic the Gathering would have been like six or seven years old. Like, who who knows what's going to happen? You know, it could have faded. It could have done anything. So, you know, yeah, you just don't know. Yeah, when I was doing work for Magic the Gathering and Wizards of the Coast, those cards they were still not that popular. I yeah. mean, it was like really in the infancy of that company, and I had I. I honestly was naive. I was like, oh, this won't go anywhere. That's kind of why I, I didn't do my best work. <laughs> <laughs> How did that um, relationship start? Um, there was a, I was, I got my uh, art degree from uh, BYU. And uh, there was another girl that was a BYU that, um, had started doing some illustrations for um, the, uh, I don't know if she was a BYU student or a UVU, whatever that other college is in Utah County, but her name was Nene Thomas. I think that was her name, but I met her at BYU and she was telling me about these illustrations that she was doing for this Magic the Gathering company and that they paid pretty well and that I sh she saw my artwork and she's like, you should probably hit them up and see if you can do some work. And so I did, I just literally sent them a letter with like a couple of little postage sized photos of my work, you know, that my portfolio was so amateurish. It was just like a letter 
with a I, and I just took a photo of my paintings with a camera and took it to the one hour photo and had them and and literally that was it they were like hey those are pretty cool oh really we'll give you some work yeah nice. but then again it was back when magic wasn't that popular i mean i don't think anybody was really hitting them up for illustrations like nowadays that's like a really prestigious gig to get if you're an artist is to get on a magic card yeah nowadays back then i think they were begging just anybody oh really yeah <laughs> no that's that's amazing um that that you know that's all it took back then was you know sending your photos and like you know kids if you're listening to this um you don't you don't know what it was like back in the the 90s to have to develop film like take it somewhere and develop film and be able to <laughs> yeah. snail mail it somewhere and how long that actually <laughs> took yeah oh and, and and that those photographs you took whatever color quality or lighting you had that's what you had to live with yeah you you could not fix that in your computer or even on my phone i take a photo now and i can on my phone i can do all sorts of editing to that photo to make it look snazzy right none of that none of that i just it was just these weird washed out faded looking the color was all off and and that's what i just sent them that those horrid looking photos and they're like hey here's some assignments for you we'll pay you this much money for it <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic now you do something else and you've talked about your youtube channel um what made you decide to, to start doing reviews and and doing stuff on on youtube um one of the reasons was uh i had a lot of friends that did uh that early on with the internet they would do um a website and they would do a um a, a weekly blog where they would write and uh i just noticed how frustrated they would get that nobody was looking at their stuff that nobody was finding their stuff on their websites or their blogs and then um, YouTube, of course, um, and I wish this, if I have one thing to do over in life, I would have started my YouTube channel 10 years prior to when I started it, because I only started it two years ago. Right. But I thought I was watching um, a couple of YouTubers that were reviewing books, and I enjoyed what they were saying, and I enjoyed the channel. I kept going back to their channels, and I'm like well hell i could probably do that um and so i just said okay this is what i'm going to do i'm going to give myself one year i'm going to post a video of some kind every day for a year i watched some youtube tutorial videos like if you go to youtube and type in how to start a youtube channel you're going to have thousands of videos teaching you how to do it and uh, so I watched a bunch of those and I'm like, okay, this seems like it's going to be pretty simple. I can just, this is something I can just do with my phone. I can review books. I can give writing advice. I'm reading the books anyway. Just point the phone at my face and shoot a 10 minute review. That's not going to be that much effort, right? And so I said, if I do that and I post one video per day for a year, I'll see where I'm at. And I thought I'll be lucky to get 200 subscribers in a year. I ended up with like, I think that first year close to eight, well, maybe it was 6,000 subscribers. Now I've got like 12,000 or more in two years. So, you know, I don't know if that's a fast growing channel or a slow growing channel, but I've seen the numbers rise and then- uh, It's a growing channel. Yeah, they pay me for it. And you I'll be honest, it's more money than I thought it would be. Once they monetize your channel, uh -huh. it's like it's more money than I thought it would be. And so now I get this audience, um, which has kept the sales of my books pretty steady, um, just because I'm in people's faces every day, or I'm on the YouTube and uh so it's actually helped the sales of my books and um, it's helped get my name out there more. And uh, whereas if I would have just stuck to a website and a 
blog, a written blog, which was all the rage, you know, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. I would just be like my friends, just probably um, uh, the cat again. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, it probably just um, struggling and frustrated that not much traffic was going through. YouTube is where it's at. Um, I would suggest if you're a writer and you want to gain a following, um, even before you get published, just get yourself a TikTok. I don't have TikTok, but that's the big rage now. Get yourself a TikTok, an Instagram, a Facebook, a YouTube channel. Just put content out there every day and people will find it. And if you just want to review books or talk about books or show your book collection, or maybe you don't even need to do anything with books. Maybe you like to build bookshelves. Maybe you're a carpenter. Maybe you like woodworking. Maybe you like fly fishing. Maybe you like flying your drone or driving your dirt bike. Just put something out there every day and people will start following you. You'd be surprised. As long as you're authentic and have a passion for it, people will follow you. I think YouTube, Instagram, I think those five uh, social media platforms that you mentioned are, are, are very key to anybody that wants to create a following. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll be honest, I mean, my publishers noticed. My publisher knows that I've got a, that my following is growing. And it's, and I think it helps your standing in the community if you've got, if they can see a noticeable interest in you. Like, like my publisher's like, oh yeah, this guy, he, he has a voice in the community now. He can, he can influence things. Right. And uh, so it, it's, it, you know, it, it adds a bit of leverage to whatever you're doing. Um, uh, and it's important. I think it's important uh, to just, um, if you want to go that route, you know, not, it's not going to be for everybody. Not everybody wants to stand in front of a camera and act like a goofball like I do sometimes and, and you know, say stuff. I, I've always tried to keep my channel positive. You know, I don't give negative reviews of books. I want to promote reading and I want to promote my own love of books. And so that's what I do. If, if, if there's a book I don't like, I don't, it never gets mentioned on my channel. Every book that I mention on my channel is going to get a, you know, a good review. And if it seems like I'm kind of knocking a book, because once in a while I'll, I'll like be critical of some stuff, but it's not like I'm being critical of the book. I'm being critical of myself for not understanding the book. And I'll make that very plain and evident. I'll be like, well, I'm an idiot because this and that and the other thing was going on the book in a book, but I was such an idiot. I didn't really figure it out. Until, so I'll try to poke fun of myself before I ever try to poke fun of anybody's writing. Right. No, and that's for anybody that's um, wanting to do something like that. That's great advice too, is, is keep it positive and um, being able to have the restraint to not mention a book if you don't like it, you know, because what I like might not be what Brian likes. What Brian likes might not be what I like, but um, if, if you read a book and you don't like it, there's going to be somebody that does. So, you know, yeah. why, mm -hmm. why be negative and have that person that might like it be turned off of it because of what you said? I you think know? that um, Goodreads, that website, Goodreads, I think that Amazon reviews, I actually think they've, and I've talked to other authors about this. I think that those two websites and the review system has done more damage to books than, than good. Because people look for any excuse not to like something. Right. If, before Goodreads existed, before Amazon.com reviews existed, and they've only existed for the last 15, 20 years. Before that, people actually had to go into the bookstore, look at the back of a book, and decide right then and there if it was something they wanted. Mm -hmm. and more books were purchased based off of that yeah. now they go into a bookstore they look at a book before they decide if it's something they want to buy they'll go look at it's goodreads ratings or it's amazon ratings they'll read some negative reviews 
or they'll read positive reviews. They just, there's so many reviews, they'll just read a handful of those reviews and they'll find something in those reviews that they don't like. Um, and even I guess my own review channel on YouTube would be guilty of that because even though I'm giving positive reviews, um, even in that positive review, I might be saying something about the book that someone's gonna be like, oh, that book has elves in it. I, I hate books with elves and dwarves. I'm not going to get that. Right. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> but at the same time, they're not going to enjoy that book. They don't like elves anyway. So yeah, so. maybe you gave them fair, fair warning that there's going to be elves <laughs> in it. Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of Goodreads, even though I'm on it. And I, uh, I just, I, I think it's, I think there's a lot of trolls. A lot of trolls right. show up there right. and then just be obnoxious. That is true. Brian, thank you so much. Is there any, so you, it sounds like you've met a lot of your heroes. Is there anybody else that, you know, you kind of fangirl over if you met them? Yeah, there's two people I've always wanted to meet. Now, one of them I've been in the same room. I just never got to talk to. And that was Stephen King. So one of my uh, heroes that I want to meet and actually have a conversation with is Stephen King but I have not talked to him yet. Um, but I have been in the same room as him. Uh, the other one is really out of the, the blue, but do you ever watch um, Rick Steves travels in Europe on PBS? His um, travels in Europe show? I, I know the show. I have not watched it though, but I know the show. I don't know why, but I just want to meet that guy because he <laughs> inspired me to be, I take a trip to Europe every summer. And I don't think I would have done that. It's one of the joys of my life. I don't think I would have ever done that if I hadn't watched his shows. Oh, that's fantastic. And I just, I just, I don't know. I just, I like his shows. I like his travels in Europe shows. I've seen a lot of European stuff because he had it in his show. That's awesome. So next book's coming out November 29th, correct? Yeah. Um, go ahead and tell everybody how they can get a hold of you, social media tags and to look for that book november 29th okay it's easy to find me on social media brian lee durfee um that is what i'm listed under under everything twitter is brian lee durfee facebook brian lee durfee instagram brian lee durfee my youtube channel is brian lee durfee my website is brian lee durfee your signature is not though no, my signature is... Uh, <laughs> you have the best signature, by the way. <laughs> yeah, my signature is also on the internet. I will let you guys um, Google it and find out what it is like for yourselves. <laughs> That's awesome. Brian, thank you so much for getting on with me. Um, I can't wait till November 29th. I look forward to, to reading the third book. So thank you very much for getting on with me. All right, cool. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe like, and share with your friends.